study of Hebrews and maybe helps to make further points of application from some of the things we've looked at in Hebrews. So I thought it would be helpful um, if we studied through that this afternoon in relation to Hebrews. Um, Turn to Hebrews chapter 9. We're going to be reading that in in just a minute, but I want to start with a story that Jesus told. And this story is really going to be the the basis of where we're wanting to put our focus for the lesson. So again, Hebrews 9, and I'm just going to tell the story that Jesus told, and we'll, we'll return back to that story in more detail at the end of the lesson. Um, but at one point in Jesus' ministry, Jesus was confronted by a Jewish lawyer, somebody who would have been an expert in the Jewish law. And when Jesus was confronted with the lawyer, he was asked, Teacher, what shall I do to inherit eternal life? And if there was ever a question to ask Jesus that was like the question of all questions, that was it. So Jesus, kind of in an interesting way, returns by asking another question. So he asks the lawyer, well, how does the law read to you? So he's trying to feel out, like, what do you think? You know, like, you know the law, so what are your thoughts? And he gives, like, the best answer a person could possibly give. So he said, love the Lord your God with all your heart, and with all your mind, with all your soul, and with all your strength and your neighbor as yourself. And if there was ever like a correct answer to give to like any kind of Bible-related question in the Old Testament period, like that was it. It's kind of like in a children's class, you know, like the teacher asks a question and the answer is always Jesus. Like that's like these two commandments. Like Jesus even said the whole law rests on these two commandments. Um, The interesting thing is how the conversation went from there because Jesus actually didn't congratulate him on his knowledge. What he did was he said, okay, So go and do it. And something interesting happens there. In Luke's gospel where it's written, there's a narrative insertion that gives light to the intention of the lawyer when he then asks another question. So he says, well, who is my neighbor? And the textual insertion, the narrative insertion is, he said that trying to justify himself. So what he was trying to do is find a way out of feeling convicted or having to do more than what he was already doing And so then Jesus tells him the parable, the story of the Good Samaritan. And the story is about a man who, on his way from Jerusalem, which was the capital city of the Israelite nation, it's where they had the temple, it's where they would worship. On his way from Jerusalem, he's kind of ambushed by robbers who they take everything he had, even his clothing, they beat him, and they leave him half dead. And he's just laying there on the road. And what happens is a priest and a Levite, who both would have been people who interacted very closely with the temple in Jerusalem, they actually see this man laying on the ground dead and they walk past him deliberately. So it actually says like they saw him and they choose to like go around the other side so they don't have to interact with him. Well, then a Samaritan, somebody who by the Jewish nation would have kind of seemed like trash. Like every impression we get in the Bible is that the Jewish people despise Samaritans. So this Samaritan coming from Jerusalem ends up seeing this man beaten by robbers, and it says he was on a journey, the Samaritan. And he sees him, he feels compassion for him, uses oil and wine to bandage up his wounds and treat his injuries, puts him on the animal he had been riding, takes him to an inn. He then takes care of him overnight, and then the next day ends up going to the innkeeper and giving him more money, saying, this should cover the cost of anything else you have to do for this man And anything else that has to be spent when I come back, I'll make sure I repay you for everything else that's required. Jesus, after telling that story, asks the lawyer this question. Who proved to be the neighbor of the man who fell into the robber's hands? 
And the lawyer very astutely said, the one who showed him mercy. And mercy is a word Jesus hadn't used yet. So it's very astute for the lawyer to observe that. So then Jesus again presses him and says, go and do likewise. So what does this have to do with the most holy place or the tabernacle? Everything. It has everything to do with the most holy place and the tabernacle. Because the more we understand the most holy place and understand what that was all about, the more we understand that the question is not who is my neighbor, it's how has God been my neighbor. And the more clearly I can see and the more I understand how God has chosen to be my neighbor, the more equipped I am then to reflect that same quality of love toward others around me as well. So we're going to start in Hebrews chapter 9. I'm going to read the first nine verses. I'm going to stop kind of mid-sentence in verse 9. But this is just a very brief, it's like one of the briefest overviews of what the tabernacle was. And so I'll just try to paint a picture in your mind and kind of lay out a blueprint to put us into that room, the most holy place here in a minute. So Hebrews chapter 9, I'm going to read the first nine verses. Now even the first covenant had regulations of divine worship and the earthly sanctuary. And when he says earthly sanctuary, he's talking about the tabernacle where God would dwell. For there was a tabernacle prepared, the outer one, in which were the lampstand and the table and the sacred bread. This is called the holy place. Behind the second veil, there was a tabernacle, which is called the holy of holies, which is the most holy place, having a golden altar of incense and the Ark of the Covenant covered on all sides with gold, in which was a golden jar holding the manna, and Aaron's rod which budded, and the tables of the covenant. And above it were cherubim of glory overshadowing the mercy seat. But of these things we cannot now speak in detail. Now when these things have been so prepared, the priests are continually entering the outer tabernacle, performing the divine worship. But into the second, only the high priest enters once a year, and that second he's referring to is the most holy place. So he enters once a year, and not without blood, which he offers for himself and for the sins of the people committed in ignorance. The Holy Spirit is signifying this, that the way into the holy place has not yet been disclosed while the outer tabernacle is still standing which is a symbol for the present time. And we'll stop there. So one thing I like about this is it doesn't just outline the tabernacle as, you know, the structure that it was, but it really gives insight into a purpose that we're going to be pursuing. Really the idea of the tabernacle was that God was ultimately, he was putting himself among the people of Israel, but he was also inviting people into his presence. You see that especially in verse 8 that the intention was to make known how is it we get into the presence of God. And so long as that outer tabernacle, the holy place, this physical structure stood, it wasn't yet totally clear exactly how all of this works. So to put it into your mind, maybe a little bit visually, the tabernacle was actually a very simple structure. Just imagine if you're actually looking at the tabernacle from the front. At the front of the tabernacle, you've got this screen, like this cloth veil, and it would have been a tapestry of blue, purple, and scarlet material. It would have been very brightly colored, very artistically woven together. And there were actually five golden pillars that held up the veil. And around the rest of the structure of the tabernacle, there actually would have been animal leather eventually covering the outermost layer of the covering. So when you went inside, and only the priests and the high priests could actually enter the tabernacle, on your left side is one object. It's not a very big room. You've got one single lampstand of gold with seven buds where lamps would have been to light this room. And that's the only source of light. 
On the right side, you also have only one object, a golden table where 12 pieces of bread would be laid out. And that's it. And as far as like the first room, the regular holy place, that really was it. So in the front, and the Hebrew writer associates this object in the front of the room, in the back, he associates the altar of incense, where incense would have been burned continually. He associates that object with the most holy place, but it would have been in front of the curtain, so not inside of the most holy place. So there was a second curtain that would have separated this second room, which was the most holy place. And inside of that room was just one single object, the Ark of the Covenant with a lid that was called the mercy seat. And inside of the Ark are the objects that are mentioned uh, back in verse 4. You've got the Ten Commandments written on stone, Aaron's rod, the budded rod, which just basically symbolized the fact that Aaron's priesthood was the true priesthood. You had the manna that they were fed in the wilderness in a jar. And the writer says he can't speak about all of that in detail, and that's kind of going to be the approach for this lesson too, is there are so many lessons, so many things that we could look at with the holy place and the most holy place. Just like the Hebrew writer had a kind of a specific focus that narrowed things in, that's really what we're going to be doing this morning as well. So moving into a little bit more of the points of the tabernacle, the previous chapter mentioned that the tabernacle was actually erected by Moses. Go back to Exodus So this is the second book of the Bible, Exodus 25, Exodus 25. So just to kind of look a little bit further on the the purpose of the tabernacle was God was putting himself among the people and God was inviting the people into his presence. So God was both giving clear access into his presence, but also inviting people in. The most holy place teaches us exactly how important it is to understand how we're connecting with God's presence. How should we see God's presence? Exodus chapter 25, verse 8 and 9. Exodus chapter 25, verses 8 and 9. Let them construct a sanctuary for me, that I may dwell among them, according to all that I am going to show you as the pattern of the tabernacle and the pattern of all its furniture, just so you shall construct it. So in verse 8, the purpose was so that God could dwell among them. Look at chapter 29 of Exodus. And chapter 29, verse 44 through 46, has the same, same thing. It kind of bookends a section of instructions on the materials that were, being, uh, that were being built. So 29, verse 44 says, I will consecrate, which just means make holy, the tent of meeting and the altar, which would have been outside of the tent. I will also consecrate Aaron, who was the high priest, and his sons to minister as priests to me. I will dwell among the sons of Israel and will be their God. They shall know that I am the Lord, their God, who brought them out of the land of Egypt, that I might dwell among them. I am the Lord, their God. So interesting insight in verse 46. What does God say was the whole reason he brought them out of the land of Egypt? Was it just to give them some kind of general freedom from bondage and now they can kind of have the liberty to make their own way and make their own lives? No, he says the goal, the whole purpose, was to construct this sanctuary, so that God could dwell among them and bring them into his presence. And the interesting thing about Exodus, usually when you think about that book, just even based on the title, the first thing I think about with Exodus is the judgments on Egypt, the showdown with Moses and Pharaoh, the crossing of the Red Sea, and even when they were fed the manna in the wilderness and Mount Sinai where God explosively comes down on the mountain and it's terrifying, the, the sound and the presence of God on the mountain. But what I don't usually think about is the tabernacle. Did you know that there is more text given 
to the tabernacle in Exodus than the Exodus itself. So there's about 14, 15 chapters to the Exodus. Exodus as a book is 40 chapters. Starting in chapter 25, you have 15 chapters that are nearly exclusively dedicated to the construction of the tabernacle. Even the golden calf that Aaron made at the base of the mountain was in the context of these instructions that were given. And when God chooses to show them mercy and not destroy them at Moses' intercession, they resume the construction of this tabernacle and the work goes on. And the book ends with Moses erecting the tabernacle, as the Hebrew letter said. So God was seeking to dwell among the people. He was putting himself among them through the tabernacle and ultimately the object of the Ark of the Covenant, symbolizing the position God would be in as he would meet with them. Look back at chapter 28, because ultimately God's presence was being made most clearly known by this one object, the Ark of the Covenant, the mercy seat, kind of together as one object, but also the one man and how this one man would interact with that object once a year on the Day of Atonement when he would bring blood into that room for the sins of the nation and for himself as well. Look at Exodus 28. This will be kind of unusual. But the high priest was instructed to wear very specific clothing. And this clothing relates to this idea of God inviting the nation into his presence. But the invitation was extended through this man. Look at Exodus 28 and look at verse 12 to start. It says, You shall put the two stones on the shoulder pieces of the ephod as stones of memorial for the sons of Israel. And Aaron shall bear their names before the Lord on his two shoulders for a memorial. So the idea is that Aaron as the high priest and any high priest would be wearing these shoulder pads attached to his general outfit that would have these stones engraved with the names of all the tribes of the Israel or of Israel. The idea is that it's like he was bearing the burden of the nation and bringing them into the room with him as he made intercession for them on behalf of their sins. Look at the same chapter, verses 29 and 30. So not only would he bear the burden on his shoulders, they would be carried over his heart as well with what he would be wearing on his chest. Look at verse 29 and 30. Aaron shall carry the names of the sons of Israel in the breastpiece of judgment over his heart when he enters the holy place for a memorial before the Lord continually. You shall put in the breastpiece of judgment the Udom and the Thummim, and they shall be over Aaron's heart when he goes in before the Lord. And Aaron shall carry the judgment of the sons of Israel over his heart before the Lord continually. Maybe a way to make this even more clear how important this is. Do you remember when Jesus said in John chapter 14, I am the way, the truth, and the life. Nobody comes to the Father except through me. So the way in is through the one man who enters into that room for the sake of redeeming the nation for their sins. And he interacts again with blood, the blood of animals in this context for the sake of that redeeming work. So the idea is this, as far as how I want to summarize like, the point of this. There are these two qualities that are going to lead us back to the parable of the Good Samaritan. Uh, hopefully that's legible. So the idea is, first, when we recognize the holiness of God's presence, that God is set apart, he's holy, in a sense like God should be unreachable. So my sins, they separate me from God. 
what that does is it makes it so that I have no right to God's presence. But when I recognize that God has actually sought through that to bridge the gap, God has made a way where I'm still able to access his presence despite my unworthiness. What that does is it humbles me to recognize his mercy, that God has made a way to bridge the gap. And it's a way that can be understood because of its simplicity, right? Again, you just have one object and one man. By the way, one more thing related to all of this that we're going to see as we look at the next next point. This idea of fear and mercy is also, it's, it's within the, nature of the ark and what was put inside of it. We're thinking about the Ten Commandments put inside of the ark, this like golden chest and Aaron's rod and the manna. Think about the fact that the ark of the covenant was in a sense symbolizing God's loyalty to his covenant. But the Ten Commandments being within it, I think the idea I'm going to suggest to you is that God would fulfill it himself. That the Ten Commandments, Aaron's rod and the priesthood, God would fulfill himself what the Ten Commandments instructed. God would fulfill himself, the priesthood. God would fulfill himself, what the manna was meant to represent. That as we see God work, as we see God interact with the nation, what we're seeing is God fulfilling everything himself. Think about Jesus in the Sermon on the Mount when he said, not one jot or tittle of the law will fail until all is fulfilled. That he did not come to abolish the law, but to fulfill it. It's the same kind of principle. So when we're confronted with the nature of God's holiness as he expresses it, it leads us to then comprehend his mercy. So what we're going to look at, turn to Ezekiel 37. There are qualities of application from God's presence symbolized by the ark and the mercy seat being put on top of it that was like this throne for God to, to dwell upon um, that we're going to see in these texts in the prophets. So there's three things. This is something we've talked about recently. That the Ark of the Covenant, the way that the high priest would interact with it once a year to redeem the nation from its sins before God, when we see how God fulfills all of these things himself, it teaches us about God's hospitality. And how with his presence being in the nation, we recognize that God's hospitality puts him in a position of vulnerability, which then shows the nature of his loyalty. And the Good Samaritan parable, we're going to see how all of this connects back to how the Samaritan was applying these attributes in the way that he interacted with the man who was robbed. So Ezekiel chapter 37, and this is on the idea of seeing God's hospitality at work in ways that relate back to the most holy place, but relate forward to the parable of the Good Samaritan. Ezekiel 37, verse 24. My servant David will be king over them, and they will all have one shepherd, and they will walk in my ordinances and keep my statutes and observe them. They will live on the land that I gave to Jacob, my servant, in which your fathers lived, and they will live on it, they and their sons and their sons forever, there and their sons' sons forever, and David, my servant, will be their prince forever. I will make a covenant of peace with them. It will be an everlasting covenant with them, and I will place them and multiply them and will set my sanctuary in their midst forever. My dwelling place also will be with them, and I will be their God, and they will be my people, and the nations will know that I am the Lord who sanctifies Israel when my sanctuary is in their midst forever. So what I really want to focus on here is the determination 
of God's hospitality. Ezekiel was prophesying at a time where the nation was collapsing and drowning in idolatry. The first command was not to have any other God before Jehovah God. And yet Ezekiel receives a vision earlier in the book. Now he's in Babylon, but he has a vision in Jerusalem where the priests in the temple have carved idols into the walls of the temple all around. They've set up shrines to altars or shrines to idols in the courtyard. They're bowing to the sun as a god. And so God, in the very place where he's dwelling, idols are being erected to turn it into a place of a multitude of idols, right? And yet God, instead of giving up on his covenant, is determined to continue to strive to be loyal to his covenant despite their disloyalty to him. So imagine, I think, as an illustration, maybe a relatable kind of thing that helps us appreciate the greatness of this loyalty. So imagine like the most valuable thing you possess, right? Something that you protect or maybe like keep tucked away somewhere to put it on display. Maybe something you keep out of reach of your kids. For me, it would be like my laptop is probably one of my most valuable possessions, if not by far my most valuable. So imagine if like one of, one of you is invited to Eve and I's apartment. And while you're there, you like stumble and trip and, you know, my laptop is hit and it slides off a table, hits the ground, and it breaks for some reason, right? And it's like, well, you know, mistakes happen. You know, it's kind of expensive, but whatever, we'll let it go. Imagine I have you in again, and instead of, like, bumping a table, you actually take my laptop and you slam it on the ground and you break it after I've paid to repair it. And I'm like, okay, that seemed pretty deliberate. <laughs> but then after I pay to repair it and get a new one maybe, I have you in again. And you actually take my laptop, you do the same thing. And I'm like, okay, this is a pattern, and this is a problem. You're not, you're not coming over here anymore. So you have to imagine this is hundreds of years of God's presence being overlooked, misunderstood, God being mocked, his name being blasphemed. God's land was withering to the point where here it was about to collapse, and Babylon was going to eradicate the final remnant of the lasting portion of the inheritance Israel had. And so God's patience is seen not just in the fact that he was extending hospitality at this point, but where he was saying even through their disloyalty, he is going to continue through that disloyalty to magnify his own loyalty in putting his dwelling place even among the people who were mocking and despising his presence as it was still among them. The idea is God's hospitality is not just an event, it's a mission he has. That even when he's thrown aside, he's still determined to apply this quality in a way that is as self-sacrificing as it can be possibly applied. And think about this as well. Hospitality is not just inviting people in. Jesus and his ministry, how is he showing hospitality? We've talked about hospitality in a recent lesson, so I may have mentioned this before in that lesson. But Jesus didn't have a home, right? But in his ministry, Jesus was seeking to put himself into as many people's lives as possible, fulfilling this principle. Now, how we're able to appreciate this is when we see the vulnerability of God as he puts himself in that position through applying his hospitality and loyalty. Look at Ezekiel chapter 6, verse 9. Ezekiel chapter 6, verse 9. And again, this is on the note of God's vulnerability as a consequence of his hospitality. And all this, again, it relates to God putting himself among the people 
determining to be loyal to the terms of his covenants, even fulfilling the portions the people were responsible for, and going above and beyond whatever could have been imagined while his presence was dwelling among them. Ezekiel chapter 6, verse 9. Then those of you who escape will remember me among the nations to which they will be carried captive, how I have been hurt by their adulterous hearts which turned away from me, and by their eyes which played the harlot after their idols. And they will loathe themselves in their own sight for the evils which they have committed for all their abominations. So in verse 9, God mentions that when Babylon destroys the, the remaining remnant, when they're cast away into other nations, he mentions that there will be a conversion that they're going to have a change of heart and they're going to remember something in a way that's going to make them loathe themselves and detest themselves, not, not just in a self-demeaning way, but in a way that leads to repentance. What is it here that they would remember? What were they going to reflect on that would cause such a powerful shift in their perspective? If you have an ESV translation, it reads, How I have been crushed by their whoring heart. The New King James says how I have been broken by their adulterous hearts. The Hebrew word that's used and translated in those different ways here is the idea of a piece of pottery being taken and shattered on the ground in so many pieces it can never be put back together again. The idea is one day God says they're going to reflect and remember that it's not as if he was distant and uncaring to this whole process of their disobedience and disloyalty, but God was heartbroken. He was shattered by their disloyalty. And just as someone is hurt by an adulterous heart and behavior, God was hurt by the adultery of his own people. And so God's loyalty to his hospitality was putting him in a position of unimaginable vulnerability. So think about how people see God in the Old Testament. A lot of times in the New Testament, people will say that God seems so much more loving and compassionate and merciful and kind. But how do they see the God of the Old Testament usually, right? Like it seems like God was kind of a monster out to punish everybody. He was angry all the time. And I want to suggest to you that although like when people say that and observe that, it can be easy to be defensive to that, really there's a great sense of truth in that observation. It's just an incomplete observation. I want you to imagine with that illustration earlier. Somebody like breaking my laptop over and over again, like to the point where it's obviously like they're actually deliberately destroying something that is extremely valuable to me and something I actually like use for work. What if every single time they did that, I never lost my temper? I strove to find ways to show them mercy and, and help them to come to a recognition of how hurtful that was, not because of me, but because of them and their, their need to see things from a better perspective. And that every time somebody were to do something against me in that way that I would show them as much compassion as possible. What would that say about my love for that person or your love for that person if you were to do that? that? It's not that it doesn't trigger your anger or provoke you, but that you control the fierceness of that emotion because of the well-being of the other person. Folks, the reason why the Old Testament is so glorious to read through, especially the prophets, to see that God is willing to be provoked to anger. The fact that God is willing to remain loyal when his fiercest emotions towards justice and judgment are being ignited constantly. How he composes the fierceness of his wrath to make every effort to show mercy is unbelievable. It puts us again in that sense of fear 
that leads to a recognition of mercy, right? The Day of Atonement, it was to happen every year. And ultimately, the animal sacrifices, the Hebrew writer has said in what we've read now and what we studied, that was really just a reminder of sins. It wasn't actually the animals that were forgiving anyone or atoning anyone from their sins. I think an important thing to remember with the vulnerability of God here and that Day of Atonement, the high priest coming in every single year, nothing's changing. The cost of God's hospitality, it's never changing. It's not as if Showing hospitality to the nation one year costs much less. And then, oh, if the nation's more disobedient, well, now it's costing God so much more. There's no give and take. It is always a complete self-sacrifice that God has to make at all times. The idea is God is allowing himself to be pushed to the absolute limit, even being willing to be overlooked and treated like an animal led to the slaughter, just as a sheep is silent before its shearers. Look at Jeremiah chapter 12 to, I think, look just a little more closely, especially on the idea of this idea of loyalty coming from his hospitality and vulnerability. Jeremiah chapter 12. Um, if you remember, we looked at this passage um, a couple of years ago. Uh, so you probably don't remember, but it was in the lesson on 1 Corinthians and we're, we were beginning Corinthians and mentioning how God always seeks loyalty to his people in a way that transcends our view of loyalty. And there's a couple things in this passage that I think show God's loyalty to his covenant in ways that, again, completely reflect the glory of what the, what the um, Ark of the Covenant and the mercy seat were meant to point the people to consider about God. Jeremiah 12, verses 1 through 6. Righteous are you, O Lord, that I would plead my case with you, Indeed, I would discuss matters of justice with you. Why has the way of the wicked prospered? Why are all those who deal in treachery at ease? You have planted them. They have also taken root. They grow. They have even produced fruit. You are near to their lips, but far from their mind. But you know me, O Lord, and you see me. And you examine my heart's attitude toward you. Drag them off like sheep for the slaughter and set them apart for a day of carnage. How long is the land to mourn and the vegetation of the countryside to wither? For the wickedness of those who dwell in it, animals and birds have been snatched away because men have said, he will not see our latter ending. So that was Jeremiah appealing to God. And now here in verse 5 and 6 is God's response. If you have run with footmen and they have tired you out, then how can you compete with horses? If you fall down in a land of peace, how will you do in the thicket of the Jordan? For even your brothers and the household of your father, even they have dealt treacherously with you. Even they have cried aloud after you. Do not believe them, although they may say nice things to you. What is God willing to risk for his loyalty to his covenant? And that's when loyalty is really loyalty. When you're pushed to the point of having to take a risk or suffer some kind of loss and you remain true to a covenant or relationship, what is God willing to risk here? You look at verse 1. God's willing to risk his reputation. Jeremiah is a faithful man and he's talking to God. Doesn't seem like this is very just what you're doing here, God. Supposed to be a God of justice and the wicked are prospering. And then in verse 2, it looks like God's supporting the wicked while Jeremiah is suffering. And then look at verse um, 4. The land is withering away. Do you remember in the promises made to Joshua and Moses, how is the land of Canaan described? Do you remember? 
It was a land overflowing with milk and honey. And what Jeremiah is saying is, it's over. Because the wicked are prospering, it's done. So you know what the land meant to God in comparison to his loyalty to the people? The land meant nothing in comparison to the people. It meant nothing. You know what else we see here that God was willing to risk? You look at verse 5 and 6. When Jeremiah says, God, this is too much, it's too hard, what are you doing? God doesn't say, I'm sorry, I didn't realize this was so difficult on you. Let's maybe slow things down and let's try to reintegrate you in the nation with baby steps. No, he says, if this is too much, what are you going to do when reality starts really setting in in the future and it gets worse for you? And it's worse for you in verse 6 than you even realize right now. Even your family is talking about killing you. And they might even be saying my things to you, but you don't need to even believe them. God risks the innocent to reach the wicked. Remember in the most holy place what the high priest was entering in with? The blood of the innocent. God was spilling the blood of the innocent to put himself among the people and to invite them into his presence. For God to risk Jeremiah, the one man standing, the last prophet left, for God to put him at risk really should not be that surprising from our perspective. Do you remember the Garden of Gethsemane? When Jesus was in the garden sweating as if drops of blood and he was appealing to the Father and praying a very simple prayer, he said, Abba, Father, take this cup away from me. Yet, not what I will, but thine. I don't understand everything going on there in that prayer. It's a simple prayer, but to me it's like there's a lot that I don't get about Jesus' prayer. But I'll tell you one thing that I think can be understood and I think we can all understand. Just based on that prayer, Jesus was acknowledging that the cross, the way of the cross, the Father was putting him at risk. And that if that was the only way, there was nothing more risky that the Father could have ever done than put his own son through the treatment that led to the cross. Folks, we can be reached by God because he put his own son at risk to show us hospitality in ways that put him in a position of great vulnerability. And all of this, can both be greatly, clearly seen, but completely overlooked and completely misunderstood. Jeremiah's time here, the most holy place, is still there. The temple's still standing. And are the people recognizing the purpose of his presence in their nation? It's completely overlooked. Let's look at Luke chapter 10. So this last point is just really bringing it all together and The way I've titled this point is Lifting the Veil. Look back at Luke chapter 10. So the parable really starts in verse 30. The the interactions with the lawyer start in verse uh, 25. But in verse 30, Jesus begins the parable. I want to show you something in verse 33. Because what we're trying to see is, how does this all relate to this parable? How does the Ark of the Covenant, the mercy seat, the high priest coming in once a year with his blood, and the fear and the mercy that that lead us to see God's hospitality and vulnerability and God's loyalty. Look at verse 33. 
But a Samaritan who was on a journey came upon him. That's the man who was left half dead. When he saw him, he felt compassion. There it is. Just as the most holy place was this like hidden room that nobody would actually really see except just this one man, the priest and the Levites were blind. The Samaritan had seen beyond the veil. You know, in Ezekiel 16, God paints this very vivid picture of his relationship with Israel in a way where he shows that Israel was kind of like this abandoned baby that was thrown into a field and left for dead, still wallowing in blood. And what God did is he picked up this baby when nobody else would care for it, gave it life, gave it nourishment, gave it beauty, gave it fame, used everything that he had in his resource of glory to bless and help this abandoned child. Don't you see that here in verse 33? Samaritan, that was his story. You know, the point of this parable is not that the Samaritan was just a meritoriously good man kind of of himself. And look at the works of the good man. No, the hidden point is that the, the Samaritan saw God in a way that the priest and the Levite did not. And that there is a hospitable application There's a vulnerability that puts us in, and there's a fierceness of loyalty that are all distinct and holy to the quality of fear and mercy that are in recognizing God according to what's seen in the most holy place. And outside of that application, it's non-existent. The Samaritan was not just some good guy. He was somebody who saw within the veil. Look at uh, Romans chapter 3, verse 25. Well, I'm sorry, before that. Just to make it a little more clear in the application, how the the Samaritan had seen how God had been his neighbor. In verse 34, he comes up to him and uses what he has to bandage his wounds. You see his hospitality. You see the vulnerability in verse 35 and 36. Or I'm sorry, verse 35, where he spends the night with the man and you know, this journey he was on, who knows how angry people would have been with his delay, the people who are waiting on him, how Even he may have been suffering some kind of loss with taking care of the man that may have even put him in a financially risky position. And you see his loyalty in verse 34 when he told him that he would come back and continue to pay for whatever else was needed. Every quality we see applied by God on the basis of the most holy place, we see with the Good Samaritan in this parable. And the lawyer got it when he said he showed mercy. Not just the mercy of worldly people, the mercy that's seen in God, enthroned above the Ark of the Covenant. Romans chapter 3, verse 25. Romans chapter 3, verse 25. And this is in the midst of Paul describing the glory of Jesus' sacrifice and his death and how significant that is and how Jesus brings us to God and how available God makes himself through Christ in this way. Verse 25, it says, Whom God, that's speaking of Jesus, displayed publicly as a propitiation in his blood through faith. This was to demonstrate his righteousness because in the forbearance of God he passed over the sins previously committed. That word propitiation there, if you have a New King James translation, there will be like a number notation or like a letter. There will be like a, a reference basically or a note. And that note will say, mercy seat. The word translated propitiation is the only time in any place in the New Testament where the word mercy seat 
is used outside of Hebrews chapter 9 when it's being explicitly described in the tabernacle. The idea is Jesus' sacrifice, that propitiation, that demonstration, Jesus' death on the cross revealed the lengths God goes to suffer for the sake of his hospitality. What does it really cost for God to put himself into our lives and make himself available? What does it cost for God to invite us into his presence? It's Jesus' death that shows us how far God is willing to go in his vulnerability, how much God is willing to be overlooked and forgotten, and how far God is is willing to go in his loyalty to his promises. It's all seen and made perfect in the cross. The Mount of Transfiguration is one chapter earlier uh, than the story of the Good Samaritan. You know, with Jesus being the propitiary sacrifice, in a sense embodying every application of the most holy place and the objects within it. Do you remember when Jesus' appearance changed before James, Peter, and John? You know, his face became bright like the sun, his clothing became like impossibly white, and the disciples were frightened, and they thought they should build three tabernacles for Moses and Elijah who are also there with them. But you know, The point of that, I don't think, is that Jesus' appearance changing was really very amazing. You think about God's actual throne, we see it pictured in Scripture. When Isaiah and John and Ezekiel, they saw God's throne, it was bright, it was radiant. It radiated light and, and, and noise and thunder and lightning, and his appearance made them fall to the ground like dead men. And the most holy place was a dark, quiet room. Just a small little place where there would be one man quietly applying blood. You know what was amazing about the Mount of Transfiguration? And this is what the disciples really needed to understand. What's amazing is that is not that Jesus' appearance could become intimidating and glorious. What's amazing is that God in all his glory is willing to forfeit every privilege everything involved in the glory of his appearance, that he's willing to humble himself even to take the form of a bondservant and being willing to be obedient even to the cross, to the point of death, and that he is willing to take that appearance in a place where he's willing to be completely taken for granted. Turn to John chapter 8, verse 28, and this is where we'll end the lesson. John chapter 8, verse 28. John chapter 8, verse 28. says, So Jesus said, When you lift up the Son of Man, then you will know that I am He. And I do nothing on my own initiative, but I speak these things as the Father taught me. You know, when Jesus died, there was a lot of things that happened. Like there were earthquakes, and there was noise. But something happened to the most holy place. The veil was torn from top to bottom. You know, we've looked in Hebrews at the fact that we now have access into the true most holy place. So that's a point we've looked at. But I think something worth understanding, and this gets back to the question, how has God been our neighbor? Do we see that? God was always looking forward to the day when we would be able to look back within that veil. And what, would we, what we would see in the most holy place is not just objects that a man would touch with blood, but we would recognize what nobody could have ever comprehended, 
before Jesus came into the world. That the Ark of the Covenants and that mercy seat was not just representing the fact that God, for the sake of his loyalty and mercy, was willing to risk animal blood, not just willing to risk his own life, not just giving his life, and not even just giving the life of his son, that through the suffering of Christ and the humility that he was put into, the position, the appearance, the obligation he had to fulfill all things that were written, that God was willing to put at risk his only beloved son, and that it's through his suffering and the depth of that suffering that God can in any way make himself near to us and invite us into his presence. So the question is, have you seen within the veil? And if we've seen the mercy of God at work, just as Jesus said to the lawyer, we need to go and do the same. If anybody were to apply these attributes to us in the way that God has, that demands honor and recognition. It would always demand honor and recognition. So I want to end with the lyrics of the song Exalted that I think fit well with this and the lesson will be yours. Talking about Jesus, it says, Seen with blinded eyes, heard by heedless ears, met with wicked hearts, son of God, worshipped with contempt, crowned with blood and thorns, throned upon a cross, exalted. For the word of the cross is foolishness to the world, but to us who are being saved, it is the power of God. If there's anything that needs to be made known before the church to make your life right with God or anything that needs to be confessed or sought for among the saints this afternoon, please bring it forward while we stand and sing.